Well, good morning. Isn't it good to be together reminding us of the truth that Jesus commands our destiny? What an amazing truth that is. Jesus commands our destiny. Wonderful indeed. This morning we are in the book of Acts, chapter 9, beginning in verse... It's kind of tricky this morning, half of 19, the second half, all the way through verse 31. Listen to to the reading of God's word. For some days, he, Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he's the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who call upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is our third week looking at this account, history-making moment. And by that, I mean truly a history-making moment. We are here because of what took place in Acts chapter 9. And we have learned in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 9 that this man, Saul, was first undone. We learned this when we study that section, the Know-it-all Saul was left speechless before the presence of Jesus of Nazareth when he appeared to him, the same man who was bent on making a big entrance into the city of Damascus to do harm to the Christians with power and authority, ended up entering the city in a state of complete humiliation. Second, in verses 10 through 19, we learn that Saul was not only undone, but he was also chosen chosen. And we find the essence of that choosing in verses 15 and 16. This morning, we come to the third phase in this history-making moment in the life of Saul, which runs from verse 20 through 31. And the word that could describe this section is sent. So Saul was undone, he was chosen, and he was sent. Sent to what? Sent to fulfill in history the call that was decreed for him in eternity, 
meaning the sending of Saul is the historical manifestation of the choosing of Saul. And he was sent to do first and foremost a few things. Number one, to preach. He was sent to preach. Now remember that back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus said to Ananias that Saul was a chosen instrument of his to carry his name among Jews, Gentiles, and kings. So here we are seeing this morning the unfolding of verse 15. And I want to highlight three specific aspects of Saul's preaching. Preaching, the timing, which answers the question, when did he preach? The content, what did he preach? And the attitude, how did he preach? Now regarding the timing, notice with me that this is what he did immediately. Immediately after he was restored, having spent a few days with the disciples in Damascus, now as a converted follower of Jesus, he began to preach according to verse 20. He wasted no time. It is as though he knew that he had wasted his entire adult life believing something that was not true, a form of Judaism that was apostate, which brings up an important point. Did Saul abandon Judaism to become a Christian? Well, I would say Saul did not abandon Judaism in order to become a Christian. Rather, in his encounter with the risen Jesus, Saul came to understand true Judaism, which was always pointing forward to the Messiah. In other words, Saul had to repent of his apostasy and turn to the true God, the one who became flesh, the one who walked among men, died on the cross for sins and rose again. So having realized his sin, his apostasy, he is now ready to give his entire life, his entire life to the preaching of this name, to the calling Jesus gave him. Second, consider with me the content of his preaching. What did Saul preach in Damascus and in Jerusalem for that matter? One word, one name, Jesus. Essentially, his message consisted of one person, but from, from three different angles. One person, three different angles. Specifically, Saul preached about the humanity of our Lord, the divinity of our Lord, and the office of our Lord. So let's consider the humanity of our Lord. How do we, where do we see this? In the fact that he preached the name Jesus. Jesus. What is Jesus? Jesus is the human name of our Lord. As you know, there are many cultures in which names have great meaning and significance. The Jewish culture is no exception to this. Names do matter. Jesus is the Greek version of what Hebrew name? Joshua, Joshua. And Joshua means the Lord saves or God is salvation. What a fitting, fitting name for the man who would lead the people of Israel into the promised land after Moses had died. Every time they mentioned the name Joshua or thought of Joshua, they were reminded of the fact that the promised land was going to be given to them by the power of God himself, by grace, and that God God himself would conquer all their enemies. This was not up to them. It was up to the Lord. And as Joshua led the people to the promised land, they were to understand that it was the Lord who provided them with victory. 
Eventually, the name Joshua became Jesus in the Greek-speaking world. And what does the name mean? Well, we don't have to guess. Remember the the account as, as Joseph contemplated the mystery of Mary's sudden pregnancy and what to do about it. An angel appeared to Joseph and having explained to him that this son was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit, the angel said in Matthew 1.21, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So what does the name Jesus mean? Well, similar to Joshua, it means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. But consider this truth. Joseph and Mary did not give that name to the Lord. It was assigned to him from heaven, which reminds us that the birth of Jesus was an eternal plan and that in the divine economy, nothing is left to chance. The human name of the Lord, Jesus, was given to him because it captured the essence of who he was. He is the savior of sinners. He's the savior of sinners. The Lord saves. Every time you think of the name of Jesus, you think of the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh and he saves. He was truly in the flesh. He was truly in the flesh. He saves as a human being. He was born of a virgin, but born nonetheless. So human was he that in order to distinguish Jesus from other men who were also named Jesus, because it was a common name, he was known as Jesus of Nazareth. He was a man from a town, and he, brothers and sisters, is the Savior. And this is what Paul preached, Saul preached, a human, a man, Jesus of Nazareth. Why? Why is it important that he preached Jesus, the human name? Because Jesus did not come, brothers and sisters, to save angels but human sinners. What needs redemption is humanity, flesh and bone. Therefore, Saul preached a human savior who can save human sinners from their sins. Saul preached Jesus, but Saul did not stop there. What else did Saul preach? Notice that not only did Saul speak of the human name of Jesus, but he also preached something about him. What did he say? He said in verse 20 that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of God. Saul also preached the divine name of Jesus, the divine name of Jesus. Let us be clear at this point that Jesus did not become the Son of God in his incarnation. We don't believe in that doctrine, which is adoptionism. We don't believe that. Rather, he is eternally the son of God, but now in the flesh. As great theologian of the past, B.B. Warfield said many years ago, quote, Jesus did not become son by being sent. He was sent on this mission because he was the son, end quote. In other words, the worthiness of the Lord Jesus is founded upon the fact that he shares in the same essence with the Father and the Spirit. He's not a lesser being. He's God himself, the Son incarnate. Uh, Contemporary theologian Joel Beakey made the point very strongly when he said, and I quote, Christ 
is the Son not merely in his temporal mission, but as to the eternal identity of his person. He was not adopted at his baptism, but was already God's Son before he was sent into the world. End quote. Hence the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Why did Saul see the need to preach not only the human name of Jesus, but also the divine name of Jesus? Here we're coming to the heart of the gospel, because only God can save us from the wrath of God. Right? Here's the problem of humanity, right? Is that God is angry at us because of sin. Who can save us from the wrath of God if he's the ultimate being? Only God can save us from the wrath of God. Or to put it differently, if the parties at enmity are humans on the one hand and God on the other hand, then the only person who can offer salvation that can satisfy both parties must be both God and man. And there is only one. This is why we cannot compromise either on the humanity or the divinity of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, but also from Nazareth. He is the Son of God, but also from Nazareth. There's only one. But there's a, a third element in Saul's preaching in Jerusalem. And this is revealed to us in verse 22. Consider what it says. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was what? The Christ, the Christ. Now remember, this is what the apostles also preach as we read in Acts 5, 42. They preach every day and in every house that the Christ was Jesus. Now, if Jesus is the human name of our Lord and Son of God is the divine name of our Lord, then Christ is his office name or his unique title. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word for Messiah, for Messiah. And it means anointed one. And to be anointed is to be set apart for a special role. In the Old Testament, there were three offices that were set apart by a special anointing, prophets, priests, and kings. And the term anointed was used of all of them, prophets, priests, and kings. Jesus, however, was the Christ in a comprehensive role, in a comprehensive sense, unlike any other prophet, priest, or king. I want you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 2. Go to the second Psalm. And I want you to consider with me the extent of Christ's messiahship or the nature of him being the anointed of God, the anointed of God. Now, please keep, keep this in mind. According to both Peter and Paul, Psalm 2 was fulfilled in first century in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. We'll get to Paul's interpretation of Psalm 2 when we get to Acts chapter 13. But listen to what it says, Psalm 2 verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his what? is anointed. The Hebrew says against his Mashiach, right? Against his Messiah. And then consider with me what it says in verse seven and eight. We are told what this anointed one is entitled to. 
It's pretty big. We read, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And we'll get to Acts 13 where Paul explains what that means. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What was the anointed one entitled to? What was it promised to him? The entire earth as his possession, the nations as his inheritance. What then does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? What was Paul Saul proving to them? It means that he is the messianic figure that the Old Testament prophets said would come to rule over all the earth, the descendant of David, but much greater than David. It should not surprise us then that right before his ascension into heaven, this same Jesus, the Christ, could say what? Before he sent us out. I've said this many times. All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. You see, we are great commissioned Christians, but we're also therefore Christians. We go because something has happened. Our king has given all authority. And so Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, get me what was promised to me. Get me what is mine by making disciples of all nations. Warfield is helpful here again when he explained that the word Christ means, or quote, is the general title of the messianic sovereign. Messianic sovereign. What a title that is, I will return, return to that point at the very end. For now, consider with me briefly the third element in Saul's preaching, namely his attitude. Verses 27 and 28 say that he preached, how? Boldly, with boldness, with boldness. This is not the first time we hear this word. The other apostles were known for preaching in the same way, with boldness. In fact, it was the feature that made the Jewish leaders listen to the apostles with astonishment. They were uneducated men, and yet they preached with boldness. Now, what is preaching with boldness? Boldness is gospel clarity in the face of danger. Gospel clarity in the face of danger. The same can be said of Saul. Saul immediately started preaching Jesus as the Son of God and the Christ, clearly identifying him as the central object of all of the Old Testament revelation and of redemptive history, while at the same time knowing that this message would elicit the hatred of the Jewish people. In fact, the same hatred he once had for Christians was now coming right at him. But that's boldness. It is to speak the entire message, including that which is offensive, even at great personal cost and risk. Saul did not seek to accommodate. He did not seek to accommodate the message by removing that which is offensive, which is something that many pastors today should remember. We're not preaching to accommodate the message to the culture by removing the offense. He gave them the entire message. So consider, consider this with me. When all things are taken into account, the immediacy of his preaching, the specificity of his preaching with Christ at the very center, and the boldness of his preaching, the stage is set for the next part of Saul's calling. He was not only called to preach and sent to preach, but secondly, he was sent to suffer. 
he was sent to suffer. Back in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, the Lord Jesus himself said to Ananias regarding Saul, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Who said those words, brothers and sisters? It wasn't the Jews who wanted to kill him. It was Jesus himself, the Lord, determined for Saul that he must suffer. And this is precisely what we begin to see in verses 23 through 26 and 29. Once again, we are face to face with the historical unfolding of God's eternal decree for Saul. First, Saul suffered at the hands of the Jews. Consider verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 16 through 33, Paul lists the many ways in which he had suffered as an apostle. And he mentions this account. He mentions this account of what took place in Damascus, meaning he truly thought of this as suffering. Now, what did Saul think of his suffering? What did he think of his suffering as an apostle? Did he just ignore it? Pretend it wasn't there? Well, consider what he said to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, verse 19. He is recounting his trials, his sufferings for the sake of the Lord, and this is what he said to the Ephesians. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. These plots, this hatred coming from the Jews, this, this desire to have him killed because of his preaching weighed heavy on the apostles' mind and heart. He did, not, he did not ignore his sufferings. He was not a stoic who pretended as if these things were nothing or meant nothing to him. His eyes saw many, many tears and he experienced many trials due to these evil plots coming from the Jews. Moreover, these plots against his life happened on several occasions, not just once. And not only were the Jews wanting to kill him, but then we read in verse 29 that he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were also seeking to do what? To kill him. There was true hatred against the apostle. Not only that, but Saul will soon have to stand before kings in defense of his own life and incur the insults of the Gentiles. Saul did not get a break. If you think you have suffered, consider the apostle Paul or Saul. He did not get a break. He shed many tears throughout his entire ministry, serving the good purposes of the Lord Jesus. He did not hide the fact of suffering. It was real, it was true. But yet Saul never stopped preaching. He never stopped preaching. Why? Because he knew that all of it, preaching and suffering included, were within the hands of the sovereign Lord Jesus. So much so that even in the midst of this suffering that came from both Jews and Hellenists, not only directed at Saul, but at the entire church, such as Stephen, the first martyr of the church, even with all this evil happening around them and to them, we come to verse 31, which is quite astonishing. 
And this is our third point. They were sent to preach, sent to suffer. But third, sent to conquer. The amazing thing about Christianity, brothers and sisters, is that it always seems to advance. Not on a bed of roses, but through a mess of sharp thorns. But the point is this, suffering or no suffering, the church is always advancing. Persecution or no persecution, the gospel is never stuck. It always moves forward. And this is the amazing thing about verse 31. Look at how it describes these Christians, Saul included. Now remember, there's widespread persecution. Consider the language of victory and triumph. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. After reading verse 29, or after reading all those verses, you would expect something more like, so the church was defeated, weak, and unable to grow due to opposition. But that's not even close to what we read in verse 31. Now, several things could be said, but I will limit myself to mention just three descriptive terms that appear in verse 31. Consider this, the church had a well-defined fear. The church had a well-defined fear. Number two, the church enjoyed supernatural comfort. And number three, they experienced unstoppable growth. Definitely not what you would expect coming out of murders of, or threats of murder, evil plots, and widespread persecution. But the church continued to grow because all things, suffering included, are ordained by God to serve his greater purposes. Therefore, Paul could say, in Romans 8:37 that in all these things we are more than what conquerors through him who loved us you see in the middle of suffering persecution evil there's always conquering as i have said before the triumph of the christian is not the absence of pain suffering and evil but union with christ union with christ and this is so because union with Christ is unbreakable. Going back to Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors, even in the midst of evil and persecution and suffering, because nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the same man who spoke of shedding tears due to suffering caused by the evil plots against him. Yet he knew that in all these things, his communion with God could not be broken. So he saw himself always as conquering, always as conquering, always in triumph. So let me draw a few lessons from this. Let me draw a few lessons pertaining to the Great Commission pertaining to the Great Commission. Here's the first one. Preaching Jesus will evoke hostility. Be encouraged. <laughs> Be 
preaching Jesus will evoke hostility. Well, in the, in the case of Saul, as he preached to the Jews, why were they hostile to this? Because they were hostile because by preaching this message with Christ at the center, with Jesus at the center, Saul was proving to the Jews that they were apostate, that they had rejected God himself. But there is more to this. There are things about preaching Jesus that will always evoke hostility. Consider these, just a few. When we preach Jesus, we are preaching the total depravity of man, which exposes the true evil of our hearts. We're telling men they cannot save themselves because they're evil. When we preach Jesus, we are preaching the true justice of God, which reveals that we cannot and we won't get away with sin. When we preach Jesus, we are preaching the desperate need of repentance, which assumes that we are not okay. We're not okay. When we preach Jesus, we are preaching the freeness of grace, which renders human merit useless. And finally, when we preach Jesus, we are preaching the absolute lordship of Jesus, which smashes human autonomy to pieces. So yes, it will evoke hostility when we preach the Lord Jesus to the world. Second, here's a second lesson. The presence of obedience does not guarantee the absence of suffering. The presence of obedience does not guarantee the absence of suffering. And I am stating this as a fact. Faithful people do suffer, and they will continue to do so. Obedient people suffer. Saul being a case in point. Let me ask you this. What did Saul do wrong in Acts chapter 9 to deserve all this evil plotting against him? Well, obviously, Saul was a sinner whom Jesus redeemed. But in this account, what can we point to that in any way would justify his sufferings? If you think about it, all he did was preach Christ, yet he suffered. Why? Well, that's the answer. Within the economy of our sovereign Lord, suffering does have a purpose which not even obedience and faithfulness can annul. The good purposes of God, which often include our own suffering, are greater than our faithfulness and our obedience. In other words, when suffering comes to those whom you would consider faithful and obedient to Christ, we should not be surprised, especially when we are thinking of those who are living according to the truth in a world that loves lies. Here's a third lesson coming out of the one that I just said. We must learn to see. We must train ourselves to see sovereignty and suffering as compatible, not mutually exclusive. We must train ourselves to see sovereignty and suffering as compatible, not mutually exclusive. How did Saul reason his entire ministry? This is how he reasoned. Jesus is sovereign over my life. Therefore, my suffering is not a problem. You, have, you, have you noticed how people talk about the problem of suffering? You don't find that in Saul. It seems like he never thinks of his suffering as a problem. 
because he understood everything in his life within the confines of the sovereignty of Jesus. The evildoers who sought to kill Saul were not acting as if independent from God because he's sovereign. Just last night, we were reading uh, as a family uh, out of Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion, and he said something. He said that often in the Bible, God refers to evil nations and evil peoples as his net or his hammer or his axe, meaning those who seek to do harm to the church, even they are under the sovereign hand of the Lord. Saul knew this. He knew this. Remember what Jesus said to Ananias, I will tell him how much he must suffer. I will tell him this how much he must suffer for my name. Therefore, suffering did never come as a surprise to Saul. And as you read any of his letters, what is it that you never see, you never find in any of his letters? Saul complaining about his sufferings or wondering about the fairness of the whole thing. He never did. Why? Because he knew his God Saul was so overwhelmed by the glory of his sovereign Lord that he never was overwhelmed by worry due to suffering. Here's another lesson. A suffering church is never a defeated church. A suffering church is never a defeated church. Suffering in the Christian economy because our God is sovereign never means defeat. Astonishingly, the church multiplied. My brothers and sisters, the church is destined to multiply because the head is Christ and the church is his bride. The church is his bride. Never make the mistake of thinking of a suffering church as being the same as a defeated church that can never be. So we must take courage, even in the midst of great turmoil and division and hostility and chaos in the world. The church is in the hands of the one who died for her. Next lesson, the fear of God overcomes all other fears. Notice how they were walking in the fear of the Lord. We only need one fear to overcome all other fears. Notice that these Christians did not fear man, but neither did they fear suffering. They did not fear suffering. They only feared God. I think this has a lot to say to us in our culture. We live in a world in which it seems as if truth is becoming more and more obsolete. Less and less people seem to care about God and his word and his command to repent and believe in the gospel. But brothers and sisters, please do not think for a second that these Christians had, had it any easier than we do today. The world of the first century was a brutal world. Christians were seen as rebels because they worshiped only one God, which went against the Roman view of acceptable religion. They would have had many reasons to fear, yet they walked in the fear of the Lord. And this is very practical. This means that they walked in both wisdom and holiness. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of Wisdom, Proverbs 9, 10. And the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, Proverbs 8, 13. Wisdom and holiness. This is how they walked in the midst of an evil generation. Do you see the practicality of this? Do you see the practicality of this? Wisdom means these Christians trusted in the Lord and they did not lean in their own what? 
understanding. They applied Proverbs 3, 5. This is how they lived. That's wisdom. Trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding. So for instance, here's a practical example of how we must walk in this day and age. Let me ask you this. Who defines marriage for us? Well, whoever said anything over there, I didn't hear you, but I believe you said it right. We do not rely on our own understanding. Why? Because it can be easily influenced by worldly ideas. What do we do? We trust the Lord to do that for us. So the question is, whom do we fear? Do we fear the culture or do we fear God? But they also walked in holiness. They walked in conformity to the character of of the God in whom they believed. They did not allow themselves to be carried away by pagan practices or immorality, etc. And so the, the point is this, should you or I suffer or should we have to endure suffering for our God-honoring convictions, then as Peter said, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 1 Peter 2.20. Now here's another lesson. And I have three more, I think. Correct? Yes, correct. Our comfort is supernatural, never circumstantial. Our comfort is supernatural. It's never circumstantial. They walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, as we seek to be faithful to Christ in this world, let us not forget what the psalmist said in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2, from where does my help come? My help comes from my circumstances, which I'm hoping they're always okay, so I can feel good about myself. He never said that. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Not only Lord, but a sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord is your keeper. This is our comfort, brothers and sisters. A transcendent reality that cannot change. God has given us his spirit, therefore he is with us until the end of the age. And no amount of immorality, no amount of war or hostility can take this away from us. The spirit is our comfort, even as suffering comes our way. Here's another lesson. We're talking about suffering, right? A lot about suffering. And Saul's suffering for the sake of Christ. Here's another lesson. At the heart of the gospel message, at the heart of the gospel message, is the cross and the empty tomb. I want us to really consider this and give a little bit of our thoughts to this so-called problem of evil. God defeated sin, death, and hell through what? Through the sufferings of his Christ. God himself put Jesus on a cross to take away our sin. C.S. Lewis once wrote, And I quote, consider this. This is the problem of suffering, the problem of evil. This is how he worded it. Quote, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. End quote. That is the problem of suffering. That is the problem of evil. That's how the world presents the problem of evil. How can God exist when suffering exists? Commenting on these words, one contemporary writer said this, and I quote, and here's an extensive 
quote, so please follow along. The words of C.S. Lewis assume that God exists for us instead of our existing for him. Does God stand on our beck and call? Is it his responsibility to prevent or remove evil to restore our personal tranquility? If so, he has failed. I do not wish to somehow minimize or trivialize suffering. But as long as the problem of evil and suffering is viewed from this man-centered perspective, we will pursue answers that do not satisfy. If evil coexists with a God of unfathomable glory, it can in no way diminish that glory. It must serve in some way to highlight it. If evil and suffering can somehow manage to dull the refulgence of the incomparable God, then we are undone. If it renders him unhappy, shaking his head in disbelief, then we are indeed to be pitied of all people. Jesus, however, was neither dumbstruck nor distraught when he predicted plainly in the world you will have what? Tribulation, John 16, 33. He does not see evil as a remote possibility or even a strong probability. He sees it as an absolute reality in a world over which God perfectly presides. He does not countenance the notion that evil is an unfortunate intrusion on God's good design for history or our lives. But what he does say is marked with a commanding resolve. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus hints at evil's resolution, a plan that is centered on himself. We think of evil as crashing down on our heads to destroy us. And indeed, it often does so. But evil, as pictured in the scriptures, also comes crashing into the God of the universe in the person of Jesus Christ. Yet, when all the nuclear-charged powers of malevolence hid the Son of God, it is not He who is destroyed. End quote. Massively important words. Indeed, brothers and sisters, when sin and suffering and evil was placed on Christ upon the cross, he was not the one who was destroyed upon that cross. Upon the cross, meaning through his sufferings, through his very sufferings, he ended the reign of death. And he brought sinners back to God, fully reconciled, fully forgiven, and fully restored. On that cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, every single drop of it. Thus, suffering was never a problem for Jesus. Rather, suffering was the means through which the greatest good for the entire world came. Redemption for humanity. Through the sufferings of the Son of God in the flesh. And now the cup of wrath is empty and all that is left is grace for those who believe in his name. So suffering is at the very center of what we say we believe. The message that can save the world. The very center of it is suffering. Now how do we know that the cup of the wrath of God is empty? We know this because the sufferings of Christ gave way to the victory of Christ. The painful cross gave way to the empty tomb. Suffering gave way to glory. 
And this is the story of the Christian church, is it not? The church is often plagued with sufferings, but sufferings are never an end in themselves. Sufferings always result in glory. This is why Paul could say to the Ephesians, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory, which is your glory. So as we think of the task of the church of bringing the gospel to the nations, as Saul did, as the first Christians did, in the midst of much suffering, confusion, opposition, what is our conclusion? Here is our conclusion. Here's the last lesson that we must learn. The success of the Great Commission is guaranteed by intra-Trinitarian love. The success of the Great Commission is guaranteed by intra-Trinitarian love. Let me put it this way. If the absence of evil and suffering were the necessary preconditions for the church to remain and grow, then the church would have disappeared thousands of years ago. However, we are still here. And we are still growing because at the heart of our call to go and make disciples of all nations stands a reality that should lead us to great hope. And it is this, the Great Commission cannot fail. The Great Commission will be successful, even if it comes at great cost, and it already has. Here is why. Here's why. I want you to go back to Psalm 2-7, and we'll finish here. I want us to finish by looking at this psalm once again. Here's why the Great Commission cannot fail. Remember what it says in verse 7 and 8. I will tell of the degree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now, what did Saul prove to the Jews? What was he proving to them the entire time in Damascus? that Jesus is the what? The Christ. Jesus is the Christ, which is what Saul preached. He was proving that Jesus was the anointed one. And as the anointed of God, he has been promised what? The ends of the earth as his possession and the nations as his inheritance. Who promised him that? Who made that promise to the anointed one? Well, if the anointed one is the Lord Jesus, then the promise came from the Father. Therefore, brothers and sisters, the conviction that moved Saul to go and preach boldly and fearlessly, even in the midst of grace, great suffering, was this. The success of the Great Commission is ultimately rooted in the love between the Father and the Son. Not in the absence of evil, pain, persecution, and suffering. The success of the Great Commission is rooted in the love between the Father and the Son. Let me put it in a negative way. The day the Father stops loving the Son will be the day the Great Commission will fail. Thanks be to God, that day will never, ever come. And the Father will give the Son what he promised him. So I leave you with the words of Martin Luther. In the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he said, And though this world with devils 
filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Let good and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abided still. His kingdom is forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time in which we have been able to look at your word and consider how these first Christians lived faithfully, even in the midst of a world that sought to destroy them. We thank you for the faithfulness of these believers, including Saul, who was transformed. And he went from being a man who hated you into a man who loved you to the point of giving his life, his entire life, to making your name known. We thank you for the fact that through these believers, we can learn by their example that it is indeed possible to walk faithfully in the fear of you, even in a world that it seems to be hostile. So I pray, Lord, that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you will help us to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we will be bold, that we will love sinners and speak truth to them. And so, Father, keep us from following the course of this world, from following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and help us to keep our eyes on Jesus. We thank you for the promise that you have made to him, that indeed all the nations will be his as the gospel is proclaimed as the gospel goes forth and the Spirit brings people to light. Thank you that we get to be a part of this worldwide mission. And so we pray that you will help us to be faithful where we are here in Glen Rose. Help us to be a light in the darkness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.